to the evil in our world. Because what really, and Brother Chris handed on it, and I thought he was going to try to steal my message for a second. I was getting ready to throw a capo and hit him in the head. Uh, only, for, only for God's glory, though. I was just, uh, you know, I wasn't going to do it for evil purposes. But I was about ready to smack Chris. Don't take my message away. But, um, <laughs> of course, it would have been funny, right? There is a lot of evil in the world. We all agree with that, amen? But here's the deal. How you feel about it and what you want to do about it doesn't matter. It's what God says that we do about it is what matters. And as Christians, we have to come to that place in our hearts and our minds where we have resolved to do that which is in God's word and in his will. And that puts us in a tough spot. And it's not for the faint, it's not for the weary at heart. It's for those who love the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn this morning in the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to pick up at verse 17. I'll give you a moment to get there. If you have the My Custom Church app open, you'll see that the scripture is already there for you, as well as the uh, references that we'll be using today. I want to thank the fellows up in the loft there for, uh, man, I'm telling you, the, the, it, it cut off again. I restart it and do it again. It is what it is, right? Technology can be great. It could also, well, it could also fail from time to time. It is what it is. Um, so, otherwise, I'm going to get sidetracked if I didn't care. Amen? Uh, it, we know that God has a purpose for everything, and we'll just trust in that. And I think sometimes uh, the devil tries to do his part in trying to derail that which is good and derail that which is needed. Um, and so we just, uh, we just do our best and we leave the rest up to God. Amen. That is, uh, that is all that we can do. Romans chapter 12, we're going to start reading at verse 17. If you would, please stand to your feet. Romans 12, starting at verse 17, says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. And Father, we just trust you, Lord, today. And knowing that, Father, that we can cast all our cares upon you. And that we know that you will always be there for us, will always love us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. So we call upon you now, Lord, to give us the strength to stand, Lord, to speak your word. Lord, not that it would be my words, but that it would be your words. Lord, not for my glory, but for yours. Father, I pray, Lord, that you help us to clear our mind and to focus in on your word today. Lord, we pray that all hearts and minds will be open as well to receive your word. And that, Father, that it'll have, in, uh, Lord, uh, that it'll have an effect on our lives so that we may live with strength and with resolve to do good. 
Lord, good as you see it, not as the world defines it. Father, we pray these things today, Lord, in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. When you look at this passage, um, if you look at the heading, starting at about verse 9, most of your Bibles will have some kind of, you know how the, the scripture's broken up and they'll have a heading, you know, that's about that section. You will see a heading that says something like, Marks of a True Christian. Now, I didn't take the whole passage on because literally we'd have to, we'd have to do a series of messages to really capture the whole section. I wanted to, to, to look specifically at verses 17 through 21, but I do encourage you to, well, encourage you to read the whole Bible, but it actually starts in Romans. Uh, if you want to kind of get the full context of what we're talking about today, you really got to go back to the very beginning uh, of chapter 12. Now, I'm going to go back just for a few verses, and I want to pick up verses 1 and 2 so that we can understand this passage and truly uh, get to the heart of what Paul is writing here to the church at Rome. I want you to remember that the church at Rome was experiencing heavy persecution when this letter was written. Things were not easy for the church at Rome. And we look at the world today, and we know that I think as each day comes and goes, the world is getting more and more hostile to the gospel message, amen? The world is getting more and more hostile uh, to, uh, you know, to those who, who love God and, and are willing to stand on His Word as it is written. There's been a lot of the church that has fallen away, and by falling away, it's not that they stopped going to church, but we know that we, we see uh, churches and denominations that are falling away from standing upon the Word of God as the inerred, inspired Word of God that is without error. We see now that they are interpreting in, a, in more of a new world fashion, uh, not interpreting the Scripture as is written, but in interpreting the Scripture as what they want it to say. Or they try to uh, even go to the point there are many people that are even teaching theology. I talked about this last week that Body Bochum uh, actually talked about one of his theology professors told him that he puts too much stock in the Bible and focuses too much on salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, how can you teach? That's exactly what I thought, by the way. Uh, it, it was almost as if I had a sound bite, right? That just, that was perfect. Uh, See, God has a way of making things happen, right? Um, but to think that someone can study theology and not have appreciation for God is just, you know, it, it amazes me, but that is today. Even some liberal seminaries even today, are, they look at the Word of God as, well, the writers did the best they could with what knowledge they had at the time that it was given, but times have changed and we need to get with the times. And it's very unfortunate because they're doing that and twisting the Word of God to accept behaviors and accept lifestyles that are inconsistent with what the Word of God says as it is written. And that's the culture that we live in today. We are living in what's uh, now being referred to as a post-Christian culture, meaning that the days of Christians being the majority has, has come and gone in this country. Now we are the minority when it, when it comes to when you're looking at religious people groups, we are now starting to, to be in a minority. And it, it's certainly in a minority when you look at all of Americans pulled together as to those who want to follow Christ and those who do not. And even in those estimates, 42% now, 42% claim to be evangelical. 
But the, 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 uh, the line, if you will, or, or the bar at being evangelical is set at attending church at least once a month. That's the bar. Friends, we have lowered the bar so far that we can just hop right over it even with one bad hip. Amen? Chris could hold one leg up and hop over that bar. That's the way the bar is set. But listen, but that's not what the Scripture says. So if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be real about this, and if we're going to live in the time that we live in, in today and have an effect on society, if we're going to make something good of this, then we have to stand upon the Word of God and do exactly what it says and hold the Word of God as most supreme. I told the graduating class yesterday during the graduation, that above all, they must hold God's word as the most important thing. Paul said in his letter to Timothy as he's getting ready to die a martyr's death at the hand of Rome, he says, you know, bring my cloak and, and bring the writings, but above all, bring the parchments. So what he's saying is above all, bring God's word to me. Why? Because in a damp, dark prison, I'm sure it was cold there and he wanted his coat. So warmth and food is important, but the word of God has to be the most important thing to those who say they love Christ. If not, then I would challenge you as to where your love truly lies. Now, it's not my job to judge you. But it is my job to warn you that one day we will stand before a holy God. We will stand before a holy God and hold, give an account of what we did with our knowledge of His Son, Jesus. We'll give an account of our actions weighed against His holiness, which is absolutely perfect. Man may lower the bar, but God will not. Y'all remember the uh, movie The Cowboys with John Wayne? Y'all remember that movie? Remember John Wayne walked in that little schoolhouse? You know, John Wayne got that gate, you know what I'm saying? That swagger that he had. And he told them, you know, the, that he, he needed some help on this cattle drive. And they asked all the, the young boys, can all of us go? And if you remember, he walked over to a chalkboard. And he drew a line. And said, if you are taller than this line, then you can go on the cattle drive. And there was one young boy, he went up there and looked at the line. The line was about this far over his head. But his buddies saw that the chalkboard had been propped up with some books. And so they picked the chalkboard up, moved the books, and they set it down, and then he was above the line. Right? People are moving the bar. Society wants to move the bar. Why? Because it's easier that way. It doesn't stretch us. It doesn't make us grow. Just move the bar. Imagine if we did that in everything. I mean, listen, I'd be Gold's Gym top guy. Just lower the bar. Right? One rep, 50 pounds, I'm good to go. Right? Cardio, I'm good for about 30 seconds. Right? A couple jumping jacks, and like, okay, I'm good. That's good enough. That's good enough. You're great. You're in great shape. Oh, I'm in a shape. It's called round. I'm in shape, all right. And so when we, we go back to Romans verse 1 and 2 in chapter 12, it kind of sets the context for this. When I was thinking about setting the mark low, I was also thinking about when you, when you remember going to Hershey Park when you was a kid? And you wanted to get above the Jolly Rancher line so you could get on the, the bigger ride. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You had to measure yourself up against there. Like, oh man, I'm not tall enough yet to ride this ride. But yet today, we just continue to lower the bar. So let's look at Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. 
It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I want you to think about what that scripture is saying there. There's a couple key words. The first key section is to not be conformed to the world's way. To not be conformed to their way of thinking. The world says, you do me wrong, I'll do you back. The world says, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. The world says, I'll get you before you get me. The world says that I deserve mine. I got to get me mine. And the world's focus is always having man at the center. And so the thing is, is when I'm at the center of my world and that makes you a lot less important than me, that means as long as I'm having me as the center of the world, that I can step over top of you and it will not matter why. Because I'm the most important thing. Anybody ever been stepped on in your life? Anybody ever work with people that step all over people? They don't really care. They're just trying to make theirs and make a name for themselves. We've all been there. Some of us have even been that person. And I would uh, uh, unfortunately have to admit that I have also been that person as well. Willing to step on do whatever because, you know, I, I've got a target that I'm shooting for. And the target is above your head. And that means you make a good stepping stone for me to get to my target. That's what the world says. And so he, Paul is writing here, it's like, do not conform to the world's way of thinking because it leads to death. A mind centered on flesh we know is death. But instead he uses a word like sacrifice. Let me tell you something. If you think that you're going to follow Christ and not have to sacrifice, you are kidding yourself. And anybody that says otherwise is a liar. Anybody who says otherwise is a false prophet. I'm telling you right now, Jesus said himself that, listen, they hated him before us, and they're going to hate us, and we're going to have to give our lives for him in one way or another. I may not have to give my life physically. It may not be to the point where I have to give my life physically, but listen, I'll have to give up a life where Huff is the most important thing and put him first, and if that means that I am unpopular with you or anybody else, I have to be willing to accept that because that is the sacrifice. Look what he says here, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. That means we give up control. We give up being the center of the world and instead acknowledge and accept the fact that God has a purpose for us. And that purpose, listen folks, that purpose may even involve pain. We were talking, uh, it was a couple Wednesday nights ago, uh, Brother Kevin decided to let me teach for two Wednesday nights in a row and I think... I probably blew that one for a while. Uh, Joah said that I went so long that it was like two Bible studies. So I think he was looking for double credit, I think is what that was for. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how that works, but I don't think you get double credit, son. But, but he did have to go to the bathroom, and he didn't want to go until he had heard the end of it. So at least uh, I acknowledge that. He was a good job. Uh, but, it, and, and, you know, when we were, when we were looking at and understanding like the early church when we were looking at, at Acts chapter 4. We see Christians not praying, not praying for things to be easier. 
John and Peter were, were taken before the council and they, and they talked to them about teaching about this Jesus and they told him to go and be silent about this saying. Don't go out here and teach this anymore. And they knew that the whole council was against them and many of the Jews, and the Jews were locked in with the Roman government, by the way. Don't think that they didn't have pull in that. They did. Think about what happened to Jesus. Did the Pharisees not have sway over the Roman rulers? Sure they did. That's how they pulled it off. But it was for God's purpose. And God allowed it to happen because it was part of his plan for Jesus to give his life a ransom for us. But he told them, they told him to, to not go and teach anymore about this Jesus. And when Peter and John got back to the group, you would have thought that the prayer would have been something like this. Lord, we're, 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 we're facing opposition. Would you please move the mountain? Would you please move the opposition? They're against us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you just kind of, Lord, you help them. And, and, and Father, make it easy for us to be able to speak your name. But that wasn't what they prayed at all. Instead, they prayed a prayer of asking God for boldness to continue to do what? Speak, even though they've been told to shut up. We're told to be silent, but we're not going to be silent about Jesus. We're not going to be silent about Almighty God who sent His Son on this earth, allowed Himself to be crucified, was buried on the third day, arose again, and is now making intercession for us all. I'll not be silent about Jesus. I'll not be silent about His love. I'll not be silent about His Word being the inspired and inerred Word of God. I will not be silent. And folks, if you're willing to stand and say that I will not be silent either, I guarantee you you're going to run into opposition and sooner or later there'll have to be a sacrifice if you're going to stand for Jesus it's not rainbows and unicorns when we're following Jesus so he says here to give your bodies a living sacrifice that means God I give my life to you and whatever that entails sacrifice is a key word not to be conformed to the world's way of thinking, but he said be, in, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. When you go back and look at the original Greek, and I've taught on this before, it, it really means to renovate. To tear down our old way of thinking and put back up that which is right according to Jesus Christ. Paul wrote something similar to the Philippian church. He said this in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. He said that we are to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you understand? Jesus Christ humbled himself in obedience to the Father. Allowing himself to be sacrificed for you and I. So listen, if Jesus Christ uh, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, then neither should you or I. But when we decide to do things our way, when we'll look at the word of God and say, I know what it says, but just stop right there. Because if we say anything after that, then we are counting ourselves as what? Equal with God. Because when I will challenge what he says in the word... Now, by the way, when I say challenge, what he says in the word, now you can take just you can find a verse somewhere in the Bible to support your bad behavior. I'm talking about the word of God in true context as it is, as it is written. 
Don't just take one verse out of context. But I'm talking God's word as a whole. When we, when we give God's word and we tell it to people as it is written and in the proper context, and I hear things like, I know, but. I thought about naming the message that I know, but dot, dot, dot. And then after that, nothing. I know, but nothing. Because God knows it all and I truly don't know anything. But when we say that I know what God says, but what we're interjecting there is I know what God says about this issue, but you don't understand that if I follow God's word, it's going to be painful for me. If I follow God's word, I'm going to have to sacrifice. If I follow God's word, it's not going to be easy. If I follow God's word, that means that he's going to allow me to experience some hardship. And I don't want to experience that. So I know what God's word says, but I think. Listen, when you start thinking, that's where it all falls apart, isn't it? How many of you know what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm not talking about what you got planned for tomorrow, but how many of you guys actually know what's going to happen tomorrow? I sent out a, a message earlier this week about a guy named Curtis Hershey out of Pennsylvania who is a well-known engine builder. If you're into horsepower, you've probably heard the name a time or two, especially if you like dirt track racing and stuff like that. And Curtis Hershey was known, well-known by a lot of people. And his son was telling Dwayne, and Dwayne told me the story that his, his dad was, you know, Curtis is the dad. His dad was, was having heart or chest pains. And his mother kept telling, you know, his dad, like, you know, you need to go to the hospital. You need to go to the hospital. He's like, nah, I don't know. I don't, maybe if it gets worse. And finally he's like, all right, I'll go to the hospital. She walked back in the bedroom to get something. When she come out, he was dead on the floor. Guess what? That could be you or I. It could be that fast. It could happen just like this. Everything's fine and dandy. I worked with a guy one time at MB Handy who had a niece who was actually a runner. When I say a runner, I mean, I'm a runner when I'm scared of something. Snakes, bears, don't make me run. Zombies. I don't think you got to run too fast, though. Yeah, I, I get scared. If I'm running, y'all better run. Because if I'm running, something bad happens. You know what I'm saying? If you see Pastor Huff running, there must be something terrible behind him. I think I'll run too and ask questions later. Now, as fast as I run, you could probably jog alongside of me and have a conversation. Right? Because I ain't breaking no land speeding records. However... This, uh, his niece was a runner, and when I say a runner, she ran every day. She uh, ran 5Ks, 10Ks, had actually been working her way up, was going to run a marathon. And so she was a teacher at a high school, so every day after school, she would change into her running clothes, and she would run using the track there at the school. Well, there was other people out there on the field, too. Other people were running, walking the track, and all that kind of stuff. There was people around, and they all of a sudden saw her go down. She went down dead as a doornail. Perfect health. Listen, if I go down walking around a track or running, you know what happened to me. Not her. Specimen of health. But listen, none of us know tomorrow. So why would I dare use my thinking and interject that over top of God's as if he doesn't know what he's talking about? He knows the future. 66 books, 40 authors over the span of almost 2,000 years, and yet from Genesis to Revelation, it is in total, complete harmony. 
actually prophesying all these things that would happen that we know actually did happen? He knows the past, present, and future. He sees it all as one level playing field. He knows absolutely everything. Why would I even dare to use my way of thinking, thinking it is somehow superior to God's way of thinking? The only thing that would cause me to do that would be me motivated by my own selfishness. Me wanting to live life my way and to actually have to go through the least amount of pain as possible. But if Jesus, if Jesus did not count equality with God to be a thing grasped, then how could we ever think to do that? But any time that we see God's word and we refuse to do it, any time we see in God's word and we refuse to accept it and decide to go our own path, we are, we are interjecting ourselves or we're actually making ourselves higher than God because we know what he says, but I'm choosing my way, so therefore I now have become God. God's will, his way, is the life of a Christ follower. But know what you're thinking. We ain't even got to verse 17 yet. We'll get there. Right now. So I want you to... Now that we've put it in context, everybody understand where we're going with this? Now that we understand that our mind needs to be not conformed to the world, but instead centered on Christ with him supreme as his word being the most important thing and his way being perfectly 100% right and my way when it is not in harmony with his way is the wrong way. When I look at that in total context and now read verse 17 through 21, I now see it in a different way because God has laid out a plan for us. He's given us a biblical response to the evil in our world. It's now, listen, the church, if there's ever a time we need to step up and do that which is right, it is now. Why? Because we need, when we understand the biblical response for evil, then we understand that the only thing that will ever defeat evil is good as defined by God and Him alone. Not good defined by you. Because we'll call things good that aren't really good. Matter of fact, we'll call things that are good actually bad. Right? We'll take something that we think is bad and not realize that it is good for us. Sometimes we go through tough times and we think this is bad only to realize later on that God was preparing us in a great way for the journey ahead. And then afterwards, anybody ever been thankful for a trial only after you got done and saw why you needed it? Amen. Because we can't define good, God does. So if we're not careful, we'll take something that is, is totally good for us and we'll call it bad. But instead, James says, count it all joy, brother. Count it all joy when we go through various trials. Why? Because if God allows it, then it's good. So how do we overcome evil in this world? We see this in verse 17 through 21. The first thing he says is this. Don't do what the world does. Repay no one evil for evil. Someone's going to do evil to you. And if you respond back with evil, then who are you acting like? The world. 
The world expects this, by the way. What the world doesn't expect is to do evil to someone only to have them love you in exchange. Repaying evil for evil is what the world does on a daily basis, and it's just a matter of who has the most power and strength to have the most evil to top the other evil. But listen, evil will never snuff out evil. It just gets more evil. Evil can never overcome itself. It just grows in intensity and in depth. We see that. People will do something evil. Somebody does something evil back. They'll double down. They'll double down and do evil evil. I don't even think that's a phrase, but I made it up. Y'all heard it here first. I hope it goes viral. By the way, you say viral these days. People just, y'all saw, you, you all looked up at that moment. Somebody say virus. Repaying evil for evil does what? It does nothing for the cause of Christ. Remember, we're here to glorify him. We're here to bring him glory and honor and to make his name famous above the, uh, 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 over all the world. He decided to use you and I. By the way, God could write, God could take his big old hand and write across the sky for absolutely everybody to see if he wanted to do that. He decided not to do that. Instead, instead he decided to use you and I to spread his message of hope. That's probably the only thing I've ever questioned God on. God, you sure that was a good idea? I know me. I, I know how I am. God, why would you ever decide to use something so imperfect, imperfect, something so wrong, something that has failed so many times? Why would you choose to use someone like me to spread your word? Why would you do that? And here's the answer. I don't know why, but it's just his plan. And he decided to do that. And I have the distinct honor as well as you have the distinct honor to be able to spread the gospel. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God uses us in spite of ourselves and loves us? And so listen, if we're going to propel the name of Christ, if we're going to propel the gospel, then listen, then we cannot operate as the world operates. We cannot return evil for evil. Instead, when someone does us evil, we'll see in the scriptures that I am to do the opposite because he says on the contrary. Verse 18. So verse 17 is about not repaying evil for evil. Verse 18, it says this, so far as it depends on us, live peaceably. Right, y'all remember Pee Wee Herman? Right? I know you are, but what am I? Y'all remember that? I mean, how many times as a kid have we done something, you know, we have some kind of response for someone, Right? When someone says something to us, right, and then we do something back, and then we get in trouble, and why did you do that? Well, he did this first. Chris made a face at me. I was trying to preach the gospel, God, and Chris is back there going, mm, right? Mm. He was doing that, and so I fell apart, God. Well, why did you do that? Because of Chris. No, Chris may have done what he done, but your response is yours, and you need to own it. Amen. Kids, y'all hear that? I don't care what your brother or sister did, your response is your problem. Doesn't matter what they did, if you respond in a way that is against God's word or mom and dad's teaching or rules, then you own that, it is yours. And that spanking you get or that timeout you get, whatever it is that you get, you own that. Now your brother or sister may have been wrong, they may have done something bad, but you... The only thing that you can control is your response. 
If you ever read the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey wrote that book. It's a great book. I, I've even did a thing, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Christians, right? Uh, but Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a great book. But in there, he talks about the fact that the only thing you have control over is you, your response. And look what Paul's writing here. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably. I don't care what other people say about you. I don't care if other people push your buttons. You know what you need to do? You need to lock the keypad, amen? If somebody pushes your button, lock the keypad. Cover it up, put a padlock on that thing, and stop letting them get at you. That's all we see on social media anymore. This person says that. That person says that. I can't believe I'll tell you, I'm some, I heard somebody the other day. I, by the way, they're not here. But somebody told me that. I said, I'm so tired of people. I mean, all they do is post this, that, and the other. I said, well, quit looking at it. If it bothers you so bad, turn it off. Amen. Why do you keep looking at it? So far as it resides on you, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. If you can't do that looking at that junk, then turn the junk off. But your response is yours. You own it. And so Paul's writing here, he says, listen, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully. That means don't let you be the reason. If that other person does not want to live in peace and harmony around you, then that's their decision. And then maybe you might have to put some distance between yourself and them. But listen, do not let you be the cause. Do not let you who claim to be a Christ follower be the cause of why there is a disturbance in that relationship. As far as it depends on you. I remember getting in trouble at school and going home and having to explain to my mom and dad while I spent the better part of a day standing in the corner. Anybody remember those days? Standing in the corner of Mr. Davis's sixth grade. I wasn't a kid. I wasn't in third grade. I was in sixth grade. My teacher finally wrote home one six weeks on my report card. It says, Thomas would do a lot better in school if he spent more time at his desk and less time in the corner. Take that one home and have it signed by your mom and dad, by the way. That's a true story. I didn't even make that one up. Of course, my response was, he puts everybody in the corner. He had all the corners filled one time to the point he started drawing circles on the blackboard making people put their nose in a circle. I said, the man is just bent on putting people in the corner. It's his problem, it ain't mine. My mom said, did you do it? Was you talking? Was you talking, huh? Was you talking? Was you making fun of people? Did you really pull her hair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you deserve to be in the corner. Listen, if you're going to do wrong, own it, son. That's what they taught me. And then they grounded me. I thought after they gave me that, you know, that whole Bible teaching thing that I was going to be off the hook, you know. It's, gave me a little bit of Jesus and we're good to go. I'll do better. But <laughs> then after that, they said, for every time you're in the corner, that you're going to be grounded for a week. Every time. I said, wait a second. Are we talking about every day that I'm in the corner? Because sometimes I was there several times a day. Oh, don't act like y'all wasn't. That was over here. I was never in the corner. As far as it depends on you, I've lived peaceably. So I was like, are you sure, is that just is that like one day, I mean, for every day that I'm in the corner? No, for every time you're in the corner. I got grounded for a month out of one day. 
Because it wasn't, listen, I, I thought, well, if it's up to me to tell them, I will avoid the question by giving one of those answers that doesn't really answer. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Well, define corner. I mean, it wasn't a true 90-degree angle. I checked. I took that speed square to work one, I mean, to school one day. Right? I was got all legalistic. I was like a little Pharisee in sixth grade. My mom said, I argued so much. She thought for sure I'd go to Harvard Law School, but I didn't. Apparently, you got to have good grades to get there, and I did, well, struggle. we got to own ourselves. Listen, the world would be a lot better if we own, if we own our wrong. Wouldn't it? I mean, isn't that what today's culture is? It's not taking blame for what they've done. It's finding who to blame it on. It's not about saying that I did wrong and I reacted in a way that was just against the law or I reacted in a way that brought harm to others. That's, that's, that, that's not what today does, people today does. People today find out who to blame for it. Well, why'd you break in that store? Well, I wasn't loved as a kid. How does that equate to stealing? You see that the, we know how the world acts. So if we're, if we're going to bring God glory... And if we're going to be able to propel the gospel message, then what they see out of us has to be, well, the opposite. And that's what Paul's getting here. He says, the world repays evil for evil. Don't you do it. Why? The world is used to seeing it. The only way they're going to see something different in you is to see you act differently. He says, repay no one evil for evil. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably. And then he goes on and he says, listen, he says, vengeance is not ours. Because sometimes maybe we don't react the wrong way at the moment, but then we'll sit back and think about all the ways we can get them back. Anybody else been there? We'll sit back and think about, you know, you may have got me this time, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to make sure you never get me again. I'm going to make sure you get yours, right? And we'll sit at home and we'll, play, and we'll let it burn within us. We'll let it just grasp all that we are and it'll consume our mind. Even if we don't do anything about it, we can't stop thinking about it, hoping that they get there sometime, hoping that, listen, hoping that they're struck down and we're just ready to laugh at them when it happens and we just can't stop thinking about it. God says this, vengeance is mine, I will repay it's not for you so the best thing we could do is just get on with it life and live according to christ and quit letting this thing burn within us by the way when he quoted vengeance is mine saith the lord he quoted deuteronomy chapter 32 and let me read it for you verse 35 and 36 vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly for the lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free you know what that verse is really saying here and by the way paul's writing to a church that would have known this writing he says listen god says vengeance is mine i will repay god knows how to take care of things and listen we let it burn within us how many has ever just let, allowed your mind to be consumed about something to the point that you can't enjoy anything because you can't stop thinking about it. Anybody else ever been there? We just can't stop thinking about it. 
Listen, if we're going to trust God for his word, he says that he knows how to take care of these things and he will avenge his servants. So the best thing we can do is just rock on and continue to live for Christ and leave the rest to God. It's for him to take care of. We need not be sitting around about these things and worrying about them and what else we're going to say and what we're going to do to try to get back in this prayer. It doesn't help us. Matter of fact, it actually takes our life down. It takes our joy that God has given us and it diminishes it or it hides it at least away because all we can do is be consumed with the issue and what someone has done to us instead we could glorify God lift our hands up and praise him and say I serve a living God who is all-powerful all-knowing and he says that he will repay so I can rock on enjoy life grab my fishing pole and some bait and go on down to the river and have a great old time why because God's got this they're biting why should I not enjoy this God's got it my back. Paul says, don't do like the world does. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't allow things to be your cause. Don't allow uh, a lack of peace to be your fault. You do your part the best you can. And listen, their response is on them. Quit worrying about your about your neighbor and what they're doing and getting back at them because they hurt you. Don't worry about that. He has you all taken care of. Just go live in the peace and joy that God gives us. Quit worrying about these things. This is the biblical response to evil. Our biblical response is not repaying evil for evil. It's not allowing ourselves to be caught up in issues and having disturbances uh, at the cause of our hand. It's not sitting around thinking up of ways to pay people back. That's the, listen, that's not our response to evil. Our response to evil is on the contrary. Verse 20, look at what he says. To the contrary, that means to the opposite. If your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. By the way, don't put anything in it bad, neither. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Now, burning coals on his head, I know that I'm going to do good for you, so God puts holes in your head. That's not what this means. Some of y'all got a coal shovel out, number two shovel ready. I'm going to do good to you, so it can put some coals on your head. It says, no, it says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. It'll be like heaping coals. It's about coals. It's talking about a burning conviction that will be on the heart when we love them in spite of their nastiness, in spite of their evilness, in spite of them being who they are. And some people are just straight out nasty, amen? Some people just don't know how to do anything good. Some people don't know how to talk to people. Some people rude. Some people don't care if they hurt your feelings or not. But listen, you know what's going to reach them one day, if anything's going to reach them, is someone loving them and in spite of their rudeness, in spite of their nastiness, in spite of their evilness. Why? Because they always get that. They always get people in the world that is evil back, nasty back, rude back. That's the way the world works. But when they encounter someone who does not repay the rudeness with rudeness, but instead will love them, even help meet their needs, listen, that is different. That is something that's going to get their attention, and the conviction will burn hot within them. Why? Not because you made conviction happen, but because you did God's word and God and his Holy Spirit will make the other happen. Amen. When I first read that, I used to think that it meant something different. I used to think it was like putting hot coals on her head. I was going to bury him in coals. 
Watch them burn to death. I'll do good to you. You see, I'm going to do so much good to you, you're going to burn. That's not motivated by love. That's trying to do something that has the appearance of good for evil's sake. Amen? That's still evil. You can do something that looks good and still be evil motivated. Amen? But when we love them because God commands us to. But not only that, see, sometimes, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There has to be a point in our relationship with God where we quit following commands. Now, stay with me now. Okay, quit doing commands. I got that part. Not for command's sake. We have to get to a point where we quit doing commands and instead just love. And if we love God and if we truly see him for his greatness, then we're going to love him and we're going to want to be like him and we will automatically, we will automatically do the right things and do the good things. Why? Not because I'm motivated by doing a command at this point, but because I love Jesus and I know he loves me and I want to be just like him. So since Jesus loves you and he committed his love toward you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because of that kind of love, I want to show that kind of sacrificial love. It's not, no longer going to be a command. It's going to be a part of who I am. It needs to be a part of who you are. You see, the law, when you go back and look at the laws of God, there were 613 Mosaic laws, and you look at all those laws, all those laws could do is expose it could expose your wrong. It could also teach you right from wrong, but it couldn't change your heart. That's why when Jesus came, he says, you look at the law and says that thou shalt not kill, but I'm telling you that if you call a brother a fool, you're in angel hell fire. What he's saying, listen, there's, there's more than one way to kill. You're just looking at the law in black and white instead of looking at the intent of the law. The intent of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, I will not murder him in any way, form or fashion, whether it be not only with a knife, gun, or whatever, but it also, I won't murder them with my words. I won't murder their character around other people. I will always hold my brothers and sisters in the highest esteem. I will hold my neighbors in high esteem, even if they don't know Christ. Why? Because they are the human race. God made one race, by the way. He made one race. And we are all made in his image. And their value, regardless of their belief, should never be diminished in our heart and in our minds. Judging is not our thing to do. They can believe the total opposite of me and do the total opposite of me. But I am to love them, regardless of their character. One theologian uh, in his commentary said that there was also a belief that this burning, uh, heaping coals also had the idea of the fact that if your neighbor's fire had gone out, that you would take a coal from your fire and go help them so that they may have a fire and be warmed as well. I think that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Still yet, just makes the picture even better. By the way, he's quoting Proverbs 25 there. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. You will heat burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, Paul left that part out, and the Lord will reward you. And I read several commentaries. So why did Paul leave that little part out? Because he's trying to actually bring across the, the point 
of us living with a mind of Christ and not doing something just based on a reward system. Will God reward us for loving our enemies? Yes, but that cannot be the motivation. The motivation cannot be the reward. The motivation has to be love for God. Our love for God will make us go much farther than any command or reward ever would. And then we get to verse 21. I marked it 21A and 21B. He says, first off, do not be overcome by evil. First off, we should not be intimidated by evil. To not be overcome by evil, can, can, you can look at it from a couple different facets. First off, we should not allow ourselves to be imitated, uh, intimidated by evil in any form because we know that God triumphs over evil. Psalms 110 verse 1, it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, by the way, I'll explain what that means. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies your footstool. By the way, that's quoted in the book of Luke, it's quoted in the book of Acts, in the book of Hebrews, and 1 Corinthians. The Lord says to my Lord, this is a, a, a prophetic psalm that David is writing, talking about God talking to his son Jesus, saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So not being overcome with evil is not being intimidated by it. Why? Because God wins. We need to remind ourselves that no matter what kind of evil someone is projecting onto you, no matter what they're saying about you, no matter what they're doing to you, no matter what kind of, uh, of manner of evil they're, they're, they're spewing out at you, we've got to remember that God always wins and that nothing happens without his say-so. Nothing. So listen, if you're going through a tough time, this is hard. This is mature stuff. This is, this is things that, listen, weak-minded people can't really comprehend or don't want to because they want to paint a picture of God with rainbows and unicorns who always makes things easy for his people. That's not the way. And we look all through Scripture. How many hardships do we see in the Scripture? How many hardships do we have? I think about Elijah when he was standing there by himself with all the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove, over 800 of them standing there. He said, you all make your, uh, you put your sacrifice together, I'll put mine over here, and we'll pray and see whose God shows up and provides the fire. And there's Elijah all by himself. And they're over there, and finally Elijah's like, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he had to use the restroom. I'm not joking, by the way, that's actually in there. He doesn't say restroom, but it's something similar, Right? Maybe your God had to go relieve himself just a little louder. They're jumping up and down, cutting themselves, and no fire. And finally, Elijah prays a prayer that you can fit inside of 60 seconds, and God sends the fire. Oh, great. That's great. You think that would be over for Elijah? Nope. Nope, it wasn't over. Jezebel continued to pursue him. Life was difficult, even to the point that Elijah ended up in depression. But did God just let him there wallow in a sorrow? No, God fed him, took care of him, loved him. That's just one of my favorite stories, but there's so many where we see the men and women of God going through tough issues. I think of Gideon, how they had to go fight over 100,000. I think, I think it was over 100,000 with 300 men. And it wasn't 300 of the best trained soldiers, by the way. God kept narrowing it down, and finally he's like, all right, Lead them over there to the water, and whichever ones laps up water like a dog, take them. 
So, all right, I bet you they were named Bubba, Skeeter, a bunch of others. Probably a Billy Bob or two in there. Probably a Huff or two. Definitely a Chris. Gideon didn't take the good guys, I can tell you that. He didn't take the, he didn't take the soldiers ready to fight kind of guys. He took the, he took the roughest of the rough, three, roughest of the rough, 300 of them, and went up against this mighty army. It wasn't easy. They had to trust God. Don't allow yourself to be intimidated by evil because God always wins. By the way, we also cannot let ourselves be caught up in the evilness to where we start to do the same. In Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, Jesus said this, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Listen, people in this world, they'll actually talk about your good and call it evil. They'll take something that you're trying to do that's right and good and they will turn around and try to say that your motivation is anything but good. They do that. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, so for their fathers did to the prophets. We're not the only ones that have experienced this. Do not be overcome by evil. Do not be intimidated by it. Don't let the size of it uh, make you feel like you're less than. Realize that you serve an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God who loves you, and we know the end of the story is he wins. But instead, he said, do not be overcome by evil, but then the last part of that says, overcome evil with good. Our biblical response for the evil of this world is to do what? Good. Huff, I don't see how that works. How does me feeding my, feeding my enemy and giving him something to drink when he's thirsty, how can I overcome evil with good? Because the more good I do, there's just that many more people to do evil. I know, isn't it crazy? But it works. How does it work? Because, listen, Jesus Christ did good. And people hated him for it, but not everybody did. There were some that saw Jesus and realized who he was. And they fell madly in love with him. And how Jesus, with his ten disciples, well, I say ten, eleven, one hung himself, one denied him, only one was present at his crucifixion, but they ended up replacing uh, Judas with Matthias, so we're back to twelve now. Twelve disciples and some wonderful ladies that were committed to Christ. God used them to turn the world upside down. And what did they do in the face of evil? They did good. They didn't repay evil for evil. They didn't sit around and think about how to get vengeance. Instead, they worshiped Almighty God, and they continued to love. Tradition has it that James, in his death, as they had thrown him off the Temple Mount, they're all broken up, not yet dead, prayed for the ones who pushed. If you go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you will see people who were burned at the stake and with their last breath were praying for the ones who lit the fire. Jesus Christ himself says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do to the very people who drove the nails in his hands. It has an effect. 
It may not be the one you want, and you may not see it. You may be planting a seed that somebody else will water. But listen, overcoming evil with good works 100% of the time. Why? Because there's only two possible outcomes in all of this. Two possible outcomes. When you do good to those who do evil to you, one of two things is going to happen. One, they may be moved by such love to the point that they will question how, why, what motivated you to do something good for me when I did nothing but evil to you? And then you deliver the gospel message and they receive Christ themselves. That's one outcome. The only other outcome is this. They will stand judgment for what they've done to you. They'll give an account for their life and they'll be sentenced to eternal death. That's the only two possible outcomes. The only two things that could happen here is either they will see the love that you've shown them and realize that the love that you have for them, even in the face of evil, is something completely different than what the world offers. They'll see something different in you that's different than what the world does, and, they'll be, listen, and they will be changed by that love. They will never be able to forget how someone could love them in spite of their nastiness, in spite of their rudeness, and all the evil that you've done. And when they see that love, they got to realize at that point, and they'll know that there's something different about you. And when they find out it's God, then they'll realize that true love comes from our Heavenly Father. And it'll change their life. Or they'll hate you that much more, and then one day they'll stand and being stand in judgment of a holy God, and he will sentence them for the evil that, that they have done to you and everyone else, and for rejecting him. But wouldn't you say either way, good wins? Either way, good wins. So why do we fret about these things? I thought about Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. You ever read that story? Paul and Silas get thrown in jail, and they told the jailer to put him, you know, to, to hide him from the crowd and, and to put him in jail. And so the jailer takes him down to the inner part of the, uh, the jail and he locks their feet in stocks. Could you imagine? By the way, stocks were not like, they didn't have fuzzy stuff on the inside of them. Right? They didn't have padding on them. And they were designed in such a way that they would be on an odd angle with your feet. And so it would hurt constantly. You would constantly have to kind of turn your legs to get your knees to be outward to give you a little relief. And it was designed to be painful. It was designed to, you know, to, to punish whoever was put in them. Stocks were not there to, to keep you safe. Stocks were there to remind you that you have done something awful and evil. And there, while they were uh, in the jail with their feet in stocks, they would pray and sing. Then an earthquake came in the and the jails and all, the, all the, the, the cells, the doors opened up and the jailer saw it and was getting ready to fall on his own sword because he knew that if anybody got loose out of that prison, it would be his life. And so that jailer was about ready to fall on his own sword and kill himself out of fear. But it was Paul and Silas that spoke up and says, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. If it had been you or I, maybe we'd have laughed at that and watched him fall on his sword and think, good, what you get for putting my feet in stocks and making me feel such pain, but not someone who's got the love of God in their heart. 
You see, the scripture tells us, actually, that we're not to be like that. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. Paul said, do yourself no harm. And the jailer was so moved by this that Paul had basically saved his life. That he came to Paul and Silas. And they shared Christ with him. And he received Christ. And then he took Paul and Silas to his own home. Good, triumphing over evil. It works. 100% of the time, it works. By the way, a lot of times people now are, are using words like tolerance and things like that. I do want to share something with you about that. I, I, when we see a world that is just bent on living in a way that's contrary to God's word, and when we speak out about it, listen, we've got to speak the word of God as is written, but when we speak it with love instead of judgment, it has a different effect. You understand what I mean by that? We speak it with love because, yes, there are some things, and obviously there are things in our world today that is accepted, such as homosexuality and things like that, but understand this, that that's just one of many sins. God also hates adultery. He also hates a lot of other things. And so how do we speak to people that is going through that? How do we talk to people about those issues? So what do we do? We speak God's word with love. You know, does the Bible say it's a sin? Yes, it is a sin. There's also many other sins as well. But we are to love them. But the world now preaches tolerance, but yet they are intolerant. They want to say that we have to be tolerant. But yet they're intolerant if we disagree with their moral code. So I want you to understand what tolerance is as we get ready to close. It says this. This is what the, uh, uh, the, the textbook definition for tolerance is. But I, I, I want to, to add something to show you what the biblical definition of tolerance will be. Tolerance is defined as a fair, objective, and permissive attitude toward those uh, whose opinions, beliefs, practices, racial or ethnic origins, and etc. differ from one's own. Now, permissive attitude doesn't mean that we say that we agree with it. You understand that? It's just the fact that we do acknowledge that they have the right to make that decision. Here is where the Christian perspective comes in. And I wrote this line. Without allowing their value as humans made in God's image to be diminished in any way, regardless of what they believe or how they act. That's how a Christian should view tolerance. We're permissive in the fact that, listen, I... You have the choice and you have the right to live as you choose. But I will love you and I will not let the value that you have as a human being made in God's image diminish one bit. In my heart and in my mind, I will love you as well as I love as anyone else. And I will not let my love and the depth of it and the weight of it be changed by the things that you choose to do. I will still live in the world alongside of you. I will still love you. And if I find you in need, I will help meet those needs. If you're in a ditch, I will help get you out. If you're hungry, I will feed you. If you're thirsty, I will give you something to drink. If you need something warm, I will give you warmth. I will do everything I can as I would anyone else, regardless of what you choose to do, because I love you. Why? Because you're made in God's image just like I am. You know, I've always had a soft heart in my, a soft place in my heart for rugged people and people that are kind of wild and, and just, well, people that were like me. 
you know, the motorcycle guys and all that, I've always just had a soft spot in my heart, and some people don't. But I realize that soft spot I have in my heart for those kind of guys is the same soft spot I should have in my heart for everyone else. Amen? Doesn't matter what flag you're flying. I'm to love you. I'm to care for your needs as best I can as God gives me proportions to do so. Overcoming evil with love and with good works 100% of the time. As mature Christians, we've got to move past our desire to retaliate and instead have the mind of Christ. Love overcomes evil. Doing good to those who hate you and not allowing a person's value to be predicated by their beliefs. You see, in due time, God's going to judge. But until then, it's ours and our purpose to live as Christ. So how do we go forward tomorrow living in this world? We go forward tomorrow with a renewed sense of duty and purpose in Christ to love. To love in a way that is contrary to how the world responds to evil. To love in a way that will get the attention of those who are evil, not so that we can be rewarded. By the way, if you do, I, I just got to say, I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it because you know how I am. If you do something good for somebody, just do it. Don't take a selfie in the process. Amen. You did something good for somebody. Good. The Bible says for us to lay treasures up in heaven. But when we do things for the applause of man, he says the applause of man is all we're going to get. By the way, you ever felt how the other person thinks or how the other person feels? I've seen people take pictures of, you know, hey, we fed these people today. Well, how do you think it feels to be them knowing that they had needed somebody to feed them? And now that's broadcast all over the place. Am I a prop or do you actually love me? Don't let somebody question your motivation by being selfish or promoting yourself. Instead, love them and know that God sees it. And that should be enough. Would you stand to your feet?